I don't know that I've ever integrated in. And I am proud of that. I think that you can step into these spaces, but you do not have to become those spaces. You can hold true to who you are, but you have to know exactly who you are if you're going to do it that way. And you have to be willing to have a little more grit. If you are able to hold your ground as who you are, yes, that may make it a little harder to get to where you want to be. But at least by the end of that time that you get to where you want to be, you know who you are, you know your values, you know what you stand for, and you know your non-negotiables. Do not conform to what other people want your business to look like or your company to look like or whatever the endeavor it is to look like. Is that much of a, is that, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post-9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 48 features Canadian Army veteran Kelsey Sheeran, the CEO and founder of Brass and Unity, a jewelry, eyewear, and apparel line, host of the Brass and Unity podcast, and author of the forthcoming book, Brass and Unity, One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. Kelsey Sheeran, welcome to Veteran Made. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I've uh, been a big, big fan for, for a long time, been following the business and your podcast and, and you on Instagram uh, for, for quite a while now and, and heard you on a round of podcasts. I'm, I'm very uh, honored that you're taking the time to speak with me and I'm excited to, to dive into some stuff. Yeah, me too, man. I love your show and I love the people you talk to. You put a new spin on things and you get away from the same old topics. So I'm, I'm stoked to be here. Awesome. Well, along those lines, uh, I mean, I guess for folks that, that that don't know who you are, if you could give a brief primer kind of mm-hmm. on, on yourself and, and your service, and then and then we'll dive right in. I, I mainly want to chat about the, the main through line on this podcast. One of the main through lines on this podcast is not networking with people, but building human relationships with the people in your life to help yourself both personally and professionally. So before we dive into that, if you could just give us a brief primer on yourself, and then we'll we'll, we'll dive in. So uh, my name is Kelsey. I'm a Canadian veteran. Uh, I served alongside the Canadians, British and Americans as a female CST and an M777 gunner. I ran the howitzers with them when I was in the service. And uh, now I'm the CEO of Brass and Unity, the host of the Brass and Unity podcast and author of the new book that's coming out in July, The Brass and Unity, One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. And um, yeah, I think uh, I do a lot of, I wear a lot, no pun intended, I wear a lot of different hats. Uh, They're all the same hat guy though. They're all Daisy Mae, but I wear a lot of different hats in business, uh, in relationships, in community. Uh, I like to think that I'm someone that is making a dent in our community and is making a, in a positive way. And um, so that, that's really uh, in a, in a nutshell, it's kind of you, if you look at titles, I'm also a mom, I'm also an athlete, you know, I do all the, all the other things, but I guess those are just things we, we, we give ourselves, right. These titles and what does that really mean? I think for me, I'm a community builder and I am there to uplift and help others when uh, they need. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I was talking to, I work in advertising as my, as my day job. And I was talking with some friends recently and we were talking about the difference of, of calling the end user of, of whatever it is that we're selling a consumer and more like talking about the fact that they consume, that's a verb. Like they're not a noun as a consumer, they're a human that's on the other end. And we're kind of going through this human process to make sure that the, the, the sales and marketing and advertising processes feels kind of human along the way, instead of just assuming that that person on the other end is that title of consumer. So I, I love the way that you just talked about yourself there. Those are all things that you do, not necessarily exactly who you are in any given moment. No, and in any given moment, most of the time, you'll catch me in sweatpants or barely clothes in the woods. I'm pretty much a hippie at heart, and I am somebody who I would like to think now has gone through enough to be able to come out on the other side and and have you know that anecdotal experience, that that leadership experience, that that kind of grit style, and how I do things in business. And you're com- you're completely correct in saying that. And I'm re- really glad to hear that because. A lot of times people put us in these boxes as we have consumers. Well, we don't have consumers, we have community and it's how you choose to see them and it will show how they will react. So if you treat them as if they are someone that you are reaching out to, that is just a friend that you're just trying to show something to open their eyes up to, you know, it, it changes everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, this, our, our, our place here is, is connecting to other humans. Right. And that's something that, that we've talked a lot about on, on this show and something that's become one of the main through lines is is this idea of networking, right? A lot of military veterans, as we transition out of the military, 
it's harped on us to, hey, get on LinkedIn, network, 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 meet people, meet people, meet people. But a lot of times what that ends up being is kind of a one-off connection with a with a, a random or a basic generic you know, DM that says, hey, I'm such and such and I do this, thanks for the connection. And there's no actual human relationships that are being built there. And so this kind of messy conversation that I've been trying to have with my guests is how do we actually build human relationships that can help us both personally and professionally? Because we're not, we're not gonna act like we're not trying to make something happen for ourselves professionally in this next endeavor after service, but we also wanna make sure that it's not just that, right? So mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to start this conversation kind of back at the, I can't remember what it's called, but you had talked about it, you compared it to SHOT Show, but like SHOT Show for jewelry. And you kind of had this experience after you had started um, your, your line and you were, and obviously it was kind of part of a healing process for you, but then you really discovered with, with your husband that it's something that you could actually sell and actually do. So you went to this convention, you kind of started meeting people, but you did it in a way that was, uh, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but you did it in a way that was, um, that was kind of, you know, a, a different than, than the way most people do it because you weren't supposed to be doing it that way. You know, I think we, we, you know, oh God, there's so much there. Um, yeah, it, it definitely started that way. You know, the business brass and unity came out of a need to help myself. And I think that's the difference between products that you create because you're trying to sell and products you create because that you, you have a passion behind them. I think so many people try to start businesses to make quick money, start YouTube pages to try to, to garner money or fame or whatever. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. But it's about, in my opinion, filling my cup and filling the cups of those around me. So for me, when I started the business, on the kitchen table, it was truly never meant to be a business. It was supposed to be the tool for myself. Once we started to gain traction with it, I was told about this trade show that you're speaking of. It's called Magic. Um, Magic happens, I think it's January, February in Las Vegas. It takes over just as much as SHOT Show, all the convention centers. So picture everyone at SHOT Show that carries guns. Now flip that and go, everybody's carrying like a Louis and a Rebecca Minkoff and everybody's walking around laying their heels. Like they're walking on the convention floor for days on days in six inch heels. You know what it feels like to watch her on SHOT Show in flat shoes. It's it's obscene. It's, it's a hilarious example of consumerism, but whether I like it or not, I was stepping into an industry I knew nothing about. I didn't technically belong and I had no idea how to navigate and become successful in that space. The only thing that I was ever taught when I got out of the military, like you were told, join LinkedIn, communicate, you know, build networking. I wasn't told any of that. I wasn't a part of any of that. I knew that I had to create something for myself from nothing and jump and dive into a community that I knew nothing about. So when I went to shot, uh, sorry, when I went to magic that year, I was actually pregnant, newly pregnant with my son. And what I didn't know was that there were sourcing tickets and floor tickets and all this lovely jazz. So what I decided was I was going to go in and I was going to somehow get myself on the floor and I was going to walk around with a backpack full of samples and line sheets, which I just learned what line sheets were about a month before that. And I was going to get retailers to pay attention. The goal of Brass Unity from the beginning was to educate civilians on what's going on with veterans and first responders so that there could be some gap that, you know, we could bridge that gap, that, that gap that is growing. And it, it had seemed to grow since the GWAT war started. There was a somewhat of an understanding <clears throat> from the civilian population, but it was very few and fleeting. And so I wanted to bridge that gap and show them that if they supported a brand like this, they were supporting a community that needed its help. It wasn't just another consumerism, another bracelet, another product. There was plenty of jewelry companies in the world that exist. I did not need to be like them, nor did I want to be like them. So I went to the trade show, somehow convinced them to let me on the floor and give me a $500 ticket for the week. Just give it to me and the person I was there with. We went on the floor and I went to the jewelry section. Um, and this was in the convention center. And I just stopped people in the hallways with a backpack on. And I was really strategic about it. I would see that they would finish an appointment. I would walk in and be like, hey there, hi there. How you doing? Quick question for you do you guys know what's going on in the, the world, the military and the veteran community? And a lot of the times you could tell by the accent, I would go for the Southern people, right? And they'd be like, oh, my uncle, sister's brother's cousin served or burp, 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 burp. everybody knows everybody in the military in the United States. And I signed 10 accounts and those 10 accounts stayed with me for quite a long time. And that is the biggest, most frowned upon thing that you can do. But I did it because I had no other option and I didn't know how to network and I didn't know my way in. So I was going to force my way in. And I did that and it worked fine for me. That night I went to a dinner at Aria, a restaurant called Carbone. And it is one of my favorite spots. 
And I went there and this, these, you know, we didn't, again, didn't have a table. We didn't have a reservation. This is mid you know, week magic. It's crazy. And they're like, listen, when you got a table for 45 minutes, there's two of you, but you've got to be out in 45 minutes. I was like, we're like, we don't care. I'm pregnant. I need to eat. It's good. So we sat down and uh, these two guys sit down beside us and they're chatting because they were at magic, but they were also there for, I think there was a convention at the time for Hillary Clinton. I have no idea why I would know that, but they, they had stickers on that said, hi, Hillary Clinton. Anyway. So at this time I was wearing our, a stack of warrior bracelets, which are our brass casing and beaded version of our bracelet. And I was wearing like six of them. So you, there was just a row of bullet casings down my wrist and they took notice of that and leaned over and we're like, hi, so we're here for this. Like, what is that? And we started the conversation about what these bracelets were and what they stood for and how we were trying to help people with them. They said, hey, like, we would love to have a meeting with you tomorrow. We we know a few people that might want to work with you. Cut to tomorrow, we're having conversations about Beth Bears and Julian Huff and all these people. And it turns out it was Jesse Tyler Ferguson's husband that I was talking with. And a couple months later, we got a phone call and I was doing a collection with Beth Bears from the neighborhood and Two Broke Girls. And that year we were on Ellen's 12 Days of Giveaway. So, you know, it just it's about time and placement. And I really believe that everything happens the way it's supposed to. And that's why for the past decade, I get people by fluke. I build community by accident. I meet more people on planes than I do anywhere else. And it's about putting yourself out there. And I have no issue being laughed out of a room and I have no issue walking myself into a room. I think I belong in and making myself noticed. So where did that, um, it's not by accident either though, right? Because this is an intentional mm -hmm. approach for you, is it not? I mean, you even said at the beginning of that story when you were talking about getting on the floor, you said I was very strategic about it. What in your mind was strategic at, at that time? And what was it just something natural that gave you the confidence to, to go find the right type of person? Um, I, I knew if I went and spoke to people at the sourcing booth and said, hey, this is my mix up. This is where my confusion lied. And this is why, and hopefully I was, I was hoping I could play the pregnant woman card and let's be honest, it worked and I did and I killed it. So I got what I needed and that was fine. And I was really kind. I was really respectful. And I was like, this is legitimately what I'm here for, but I genuinely think I bought the wrong ticket. And I did, I did buy a sourcing ticket. It was the wrong ticket. I didn't know. And it wasn't that I was trying to have some type of malice and get things for free. I genuinely booked the wrong ticket. So I knew that if I just was kind, I was respectful. I smiled. I told them what I was doing and I was empathetic and showed them this is what I was here for the right person would hear it. And it did. And it worked that way. But in terms of strategy, what I meant by that was you cannot be known if you do not put yourself in the room. You can, no one can know who you are if you don't speak up and say the things you think that are important. Most people don't think that the thing that they're doing is important enough to scream from the rooftops. I did. I always have. That's never wavered. It's never been I need to build my confidence. I was fortunate enough prior to service. I was a very competitive high-level fighter. I built confidence on myself early on. It took me a long time to get it back, but once it did, it was just a fire underneath me. I knew I belonged in these rooms. And because this world has been created by no one smarter than you, it's why not me? Not why them? Why not me? Do you have do you ever have people uh that you speak to that struggle with that with what you just said and ask you how like yes. ask you how to develop that kind of confidence yeah 100% i i started i started a coaching practice and i'm working with some individuals and trying to help mentor and things along those lines different veterans and stuff and i and i do this because people do ask me i do get a ton of dms about like hey you know, I really want to do this, but I don't know how to approach somebody. I really want to start a podcast, but how do you book your people? How do you get a hold of these people? What's your deal? And it's a really simple process, but most of the people will never do it because the, the thing they want the most is standing right behind fear. And fear is going to be the thing that kills their dreams tenfold. Every time, if you take 10 entrepreneurs, nine of them will not succeed because of fear. And that is, they don't want to be told no. They don't want to be laughed out of the room. They're, they're worried that their character, they're worried that they'll fail in, in, in the endeavor itself for whatever it is, whether they were told this children, they're not good enough, or whether the service made them think that they don't deserve to be anything successful outside of this, for whatever reason, people struggle with confidence. And it's, I'm not saying I don't struggle all the time. Don't get me wrong. The higher I go in this space, whether it's in podcasting, in speaking, in entrepreneurship, you name it, the higher I go, the nerves are still there. 
But then I have a little chat with myself in the mirror right before and I slap my fucking hat on and go, let's go because we've got no time to be wasting on the things that I'm trying to achieve. There's an X amount of hours in the day and I go to bed every night exhausted because I know that I've squeezed every moment out of this day, whether it's business, family, sports, you name it, but I don't waste a moment. Yeah. I mean, you can't, right. So there's that, that old saying that is a cliche for a reason. I think it's because it's true. It's like, it doesn't get easier. You just get better, right? The more reps that you get doing the thing that you love, doing the thing that you think you can provide the world, doing the thing that, that gives you meaning and purpose. The more that you do that, the more reps that you get, the better you get at those things. The circumstances don't necessarily get easier. And I think it's really important to remember that, yeah, the higher you go, the bigger the rooms or the smaller the rooms and the bigger the arenas, like that's when the stakes get higher and higher. So that's when you need to be able to be at your best. And if you're not at your best and you haven't been getting those reps, like you're hurting your future self right now by by standing in front of that fear and not kind of pushing through it, right? It's like, think about your future self, not just yourself right now. That future mm -hmm. self is gonna want more and better opportunities and you're kind of depriving yourself of that. Um, I do think too, in the military, you know, I was a flight line guy, so I worked on loaded bombs on, on fighter jets and we had, you know, technical orders and we had our SOPs and we had, you know, the very rigid way that you need, and obviously it's munitions, right? Like those things could, mm -hmm. could blow up at any time. <laughs> and like, I was wiring fuses and doing all these things that are not, you know, like EOD no, in the military for a reason, right? It's like, you know, those guys are just one call away. So it's really important that you follow those rigid procedures. And that's great because it provides you with a really good framework as you leave the military to say, oh, okay, you know, I can go find out what the procedures are here. I can put one foot in front of the other. And I know that there's a resolution at the end of this process. The problem with that though, is that you find yourself getting too rigid because it, once you get out of the military, those things aren't being taken care of for you. Um, and, and you're just kind of like, oh, okay, well now I have to figure these processes out myself. Um, and I think that's where connecting with other people that aren't necessarily other veterans that have successfully transitioned, but other people that like some of the ones that you met, they said, okay, these are people that are operating in this space where they know how to sell jewelry, where they know how to like brand things and partner with things. And you kind of went and surrounded yourself with, with obviously very high level people in that space. Can you talk about what you learned as you kind of exposed yourself and, and in, in integrated into a community of people that was selling things at a, at a very high level? It's funny because I don't know that I've ever integrated in and I, and I am proud of that. I think that you can step into these spaces, but you do not have to become those spaces. You can hold true to who you are, but you have to know exactly who you are if you're going to do it that way. And you have to be willing to have a little more grit because if you don't conform in a lot of these, in a lot of these business uh, spaces, especially nowadays, as you see the, depending on the woke movement or depending on who you believe or blah, 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 you name it. If you are able to hold your ground as who you are, yes, that may make it a little harder to get to where you want to be. But at least by the end of that time that you get to where you want to be, you know who you are, you know your values, you know what you stand for, and you know your non-negotiables. So for me, um, what did I learn? Oof, man, I learned everything. I learned everything the hard way and the wrong way. But that is how entrepreneurship is. You nothing's going to work the first time. Like most people when they, you know, now that they're just kind of it seems like a lot of people are just finding out about me because of my podcast and because of the book and the stuff that I'm doing. I'm like, "Oh, wow. How long have you been around? Like I've just I've just found out about you. It's amazing. It's like, okay, but I've been doing this for almost a decade. I have been hustling for a decade on planes, on trains, on buses, you name it. If I had to swim there, I was getting there. So for me, what I learned was if I want to be there and I wanted to teach others about what was going on, I needed to be knowledgeable enough and be willing to stand on my own two feet in what I was doing. So when I stepped into those high level conversations of those rooms, when people said, Hey, would you, would you make a product like this? And I knew I would get a deal with X, Y, and Z if I did said product, but I didn't believe in that product. I would rather stunt my growth a year or two because I know I'll get there because no one's going to tell me no. And if they do, they're only going to tell me no a few times because what they're going to find out is, is I'm relentless and I'm ruthless and I am in your face until you say yes. If I believe that we should be working together, it's probably for a reason. So I learned the hard way that do not conform to what other people want your business to look like or your company to look like or whatever the endeavor it is to look like. Stay firm in that because that is where your creativity flows. That is where your heart and your passion lie. And that is where when you're speaking about your brand or whatever it is you're doing, that is where that needs to convey. If you don't love what you do, 
even on the hard days, you will never succeed. You have to love it when it's in the ground, dead and buried because COVID happened and you lost retailers or you lost the business or whatever. You have to love the grind, period. Yeah, it's another thing that we talk a lot about on here is the why is certainly very important. And and for a, a lot of the you know nonprofits uh, that, that are in our community or, you know, uh, companies like yours that give proceeds, like obviously there's a lot of why behind that. But the what is super important. Like if you're if you're not really enjoying what you're doing every day, you're not actually enjoying not just like the process and the grind and, and the hustle and all that, but the actual what the meat and potatoes of what goes into making the widget or creating the service or providing whatever it might be, you're dead in the water because it's something you're gonna have to do every day. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're building it yourself, you're gonna have to do it all yourself without the help that you know other companies could 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 hire out and outsource. And the other what thing to you, that oh. though, too, is I was going to say, sorry to interrupt. The other thing oh. I was going to say to that too, is it's not just about loving what you do and being passionate about what you do. It's about genuinely being willing to put your soul into what you do because people do not buy from people if they don't feel a human connection. And that is something that so many businesses miss the mark on. And I'm not saying I have it dialed by any means, but I'm speaking to the fact that I've seen what happens in this space, whether it's veteran, military, um, the fashion world, if you just don't care, like, it's okay to hate some of the things you do when you're an entrepreneur. You're not gonna love packaging. You're maybe not gonna love warehousing. You're maybe not gonna love making clips. But do those things, do the shit that you hate first. Do it early in the morning and get the suck done. It will set you up. And that's something I've learned, especially with podcasting. I'm obsessed with it. I want to do it every day of my life. But you make me edit clips and I hate it. But I hate it. I hate it. I'll hold off on it. But I got to a point last year where I said, no more. No more procrastinating on the things you don't like. Those are the things that we do first. And my God, what a change and a shift. Ooh. Yep. Yeah. It's like, it's like, uh, it's, it's more than just thinking about it as like a tax that you have to pay and more about thinking it, thinking of it as like something that you get to do that, that takes you closer to the thing that you actually, you know, want to do. And I think that when you talk about pouring your soul into it and thinking about being a human, we've, we've so much, like we just, I, I, I always sound like my my parents and I never thought that I would oh, yeah. <laughs> our culture these days, you know, blah, blah, blah. Know. But it's, it's, it's true. Our culture this, these days, we, we, we kind of worship efficiency, right? And we worship like this, this kind of like, how quickly can I get things done? How efficiently can I get things done? And, you know, kind of what's on the other side of that. And we just dispense with the, the, the very messy human process that goes into creating whatever it is that we're creating, whether it's a podcast, whether it's, you know, jewelry or whether it's writing a book, making a TV series, like whatever it might be. Um, and, and like, when we think about it in terms of, of soul, like, you know, machines don't have souls, humans have souls. So if soul is going into it, that's really what another person, not to get too woo woo, but that's what the other person on the other side of that conversation is actually interacting with is you as a, as a human. Right. And you're, no, you're, you're super right. And I don't think it's even necessarily like for the people who are like, that's too woo. It's not, let's break it down for a second. Think about this. If you have a robot building a product that you are not attached to, that there is no emotion to, it's just a package. It's like your iPhone. You get a new iPhone. They come out every year. Everyone knows in September, new stuff's coming. We get it. Or at least my husband does. Cause he's a techie. <clears throat> Wait, I know. Oh, it's painful, but I digress. My point in that is there is Life in product, if you allow it to be seen, for example, if you go on Brass and Unity's website and you look at product that is in the Shine Bright collection or in the uh, Warrior Bracelet collection, I hand build those still for my entire company. I sit down one day a month and I hand build product that I sit there and I full on assembly line product. And I do it because there cannot be a loss, meaning I started this to help myself. So I cannot move away from what I need. I cannot move away from touching a product and putting a piece of me and my heart and soul into it. And that's why certain products have been around for with us for almost a decade. It's like when you speak to how quickly things move, it's called fast fashion. I hate fast fashion. It's disgusting. It causes over, you wanna talk about climate? 
Look at fast fashion, go look at India, go look at any of these places that are pumping out your products on a daily basis. And every three days they have a new skew in store. Skew meaning a new product, multiple colors, multiple sizes. When I used to work predominantly in the fashion space. So pr prior to COVID, we had 200 retailers, okay? In North America, I hand signed every single account. I was at every single meeting, every single appointment. People have my cell phone number and that's how they texted orders. These were like big deal, big box. And they'd be like, Kelsey, we need X, Y, these. Da, da, da. And that would be fine with me because there's a human connection to it. But here's the thing about, again, doing it the way everybody is else is telling you to do it. That doesn't always work for me. I'm not fast fashion. I have same product I've had for years. Do you know why? Because it's consistent and it works and there's a connection deeper to it. You will never see us have a new jewelry piece. Again, every four months, every three months, we're not dropping a new collection because we are not fast fashion. We are here to stay. We are quality and we are supposed to be a part of your life, not just for the season and when it's fashionable. It doesn't work that way. And that's just how I, that was one of those things where I said, hey, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And then we lost a lot of those retailers, right? Yeah. Gosh, that's so, that's so well said. Um, and, and actually the iPhone example is a really good one. My wife and I, my wife is also techie. And we were just talking about it the other day. She, I, I was doing all of my, my phone stuff through Verizon. And now I do it through the Apple upgrade program, which she's been yeah. doing, I guess, for like eight years now or whatever. <laughs> And for the last couple of years, I will get a text message right around now, the summertime being like, hey, the new iPhone is dropping in September. Uh, you know, you've paid paid the loan up to this to the point where you can now trade it in for free and keep up, whatever, whatever. And I mentioned this to her the other day. I said, oh, I think I'm actually due for, you know, another iPhone. And she goes, eh, I mean, it's just like, we all know the upgrades are just like not really, they're not that different anymore. It's just kind of this monotonous kind of like, oh, it's a new upgrade, it's September again. You know, it's like, and then when Steve, jo that, it all started when Steve Jobs died, like that, that guy, which we, we could certainly go into that, but like, it was very human, the way that he tried to yes. integrate all of like himself and the way that he wanted that company to do things into every single product, every single product launch. And now, you know, whatever it is, five, eight years later, it's, you know, it's, it, it just doesn't feel as human. Um, and so I actually think that's, I think that's a really good example. Um, in terms of, in terms of writing the book and podcasting and running this business and, and doing all these things, at, at what point did you start to think, okay, I'm selling this product. It's going really well. People love it. I'm accomplishing the mission that I want to accomplish personally for myself, professionally, and give back to the, to the people that I want to give back to. At what point did you start to say, all right, time to do more, time to tell my story on a podcast, time to, to write this book, time to, to try to get a deal um, for, for this to, to go, the story to go wider. How did that happen? And, and what was the process for you? Like personally, as you were moving through all of that? So I'm going to tell you something that nobody wants to acknowledge and pretends that isn't, isn't real. Anybody can do it. Anybody can do this. Anybody. I'm not kidding. If you're literate and you can read and write, you can do this. Now I'm not saying it'll get published on a big scale. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm saying anybody can do this. Anybody, if you just start and you try, can do this. So for me with the book, uh, oh, I always was told um, that I had a bit of a different story just because I, I, again, I was just the woman in the room. And that's not to take away from any of the, the females that have served since. But when I served in 2007 to 11, there weren't women doing my jobs in, in America or in the UK, they were allowed to do them in Canada. So we were allowed to have combat arms roles for infantry, artillery, and armored. And I say those specific ones because, and EOD as well. And I say those because I actually did a speaking engagement one time in Las Vegas and I had a girl come up to me. This was at a huge, it was at the Hard Rock or something ridiculous. I definitely don't know how I landed that. And she grabbed the back of my arm and she said, I was on the front lines in so-and-so year. And I said, what were you doing? She goes, well, I was a truck driver. I said, eh, wrong answer. My point in saying that was, we're not all cut from the same cloth and that is okay. But the job that I was in at that time was just different. It was just in a, I was in a weird position and I got a different opportunity. And actually yesterday I had somebody reach out to me on social media out of the blue. We were 
long and short, there was a, a Navy member in the Canadian Armed Forces. We were we were actually outing for being a pedophile, and we were going through this this process. And he said to me, "Hey, were you from Valcarche?" And I was like, "Dot dot dot." You've heard my story on something, and he's like, "No, I think were you in Rota one hundred and nine?" And I said, "Yeah." And he's like, "No, nah, I was I was a Van Du. I was a Van Du. I was on your deployment. You were the chick that was with the Brits, right?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes. Yeah, we, we all knew who there was just one random girl running around with the British. And it was, again, not supposed to be there, was just a fluke, was just kind of brought. It was just, I was just that person. So my story had a different, a, enough of a difference that it stood out to people. So when somebody said, hey, I, that would be really cool. You should start writing. I have already been journaling. Journaling for me was a way that I cope. It was a way that I process emotion. It allowed to get things off of my chest, which I highly recommend if somebody is spinning out lists and journaling, take control of what you can control. And so I was writing out and, you know, I, I had sent it to somebody in Canada and they're like, this is really good. We'd like to, you know, we'd like to do this with you cut too long and short. It wasn't a good fit. <clears throat> COVID happened and I pulled it from them. And so this book has been up to now, it's been a five-year process, meaning, and it, this is a long, I'm going to try and consolidate for you my best of my ability. I had this story. I had been writing a little bit. We pulled it right before COVID. I went to France on the 75th anniversary of D-Day where I did a 600 kilometer road bike ride with my husband and 150 other Canadians. And we landed on Juneau beach <clears throat> for a charity. And we were there with a world war II artillery gunner that landed on Juneau beach when they, when they on D day. And, um, there were some high level individuals there that had donated and wanted to come ride. <clears throat> I was wearing our bracelets and we had given out active bracelets to everyone for the ride. He came up to me on the bus ride home to the airport and said, Hey, Kels, I know some people I'd like to introduce you to. I think you've got quite a story and I'd like to show this product to people. I said, okay. And I just kind of let it go, right? We get home. A month later, I get a phone call. Kelsey, I'm about to put you on the phone with six different individuals. They're the top publishers in America, the top PR and the top X, Y, and Z. At the time I was speaking to the, he was the, the CEO of the David Foster Foundation. So this was somebody, Michael went out of his way, made some phone calls and advocated on behalf of me. Once I did that, I got dropped into a group of people, again, a room I didn't belong in, but act accordingly, right? So I showed up, we had the conversations. There was a publisher on the line that stated, well, I'll be honest with you, Kelsey, why do you think that we will care about a Canadian female veteran? You're not American, your story won't sell and it won't matter. I saw red on that phone call and went off. And the only two people that stayed on that phone call afterwards were my PR and Michael. Well, my PR is still my same PR rep that I've had now. She is, she represents all the names and somehow she goes, there's something about you. I just got to stick with you. Him, um, it was her. And then uh, Mark Johnston, who represents um, Clive Davis and all of these people just saw something in me and they just got me to the right people. And then next thing you know, I got to the right literary agent in New York. And again, I got on the phone and they said to me, Kelsey, you have to sell this. You have to make them believe in you. And so I got on the phone and I did what I do best. I told why I'm doing this, why the story needs to be told and how I can make it successful. And they took a chance on me and they represented me. And then we went in the negotiation table where we sent it to all the publishers and we got the feedback. And a lot of it was, she's not special forces. She's not, she's not American. This will not sell. And we, we got told no more times than I can imagine. And then finally it came down to two publishers and we, we signed with one it's post Hill and it distributes through Simon and Schuster. So I knew they had had war books and they had done crisis of command, a few bad men. They had done all of these, you know, Stuart Scheller's book, Trump's, uh, what was her name? Oh my God. She was brilliant. She was the aide at the front, you know, the white house oh, correspondent yeah. and she was uh, the blonde and Kayla, Kaylee, so, Mac so, boom, and she would just yeah. like shut people down. And I was like, yeah. if she's represented by them, I'm good with that. She seems like she gets it. So yeah. I went with them and they said, look, this is going to release next year. Now, at that point, I had a ghostwriter come in and take a look at it. And they told me, you know, this is not going to be good enough to publish. So when we signed the deal and I went to the publisher, they said, OK, well, you know, it's going to take X amount of time to write it. And we said, yeah, we'll deliver it by then. And I said, listen, guys, I have a full manuscript. Like, I have a full book. They're like, what? I said, yeah. And they're like, send us the book. So I sent them the book. They go this is fantastic. And I went, oh, I was told it's not good enough. 
And they're like, we don't know who told you that, but this is enough. This is coming out next year. We're running with this. And let me preface this with, there was other editors that have touched this book, other people that have touched this book. I did not do this book on my own. I wrote it on my own. I wrote a 70,000 word book. And then hands came in and were like, you can't spell and your grammar is terrible. So let's correct your life a little bit. And they, they helped me turn this book into what it is now. So as much as, yes, I wrote this book, I, I truly wrote it. I did not use a ghostwriter. I had a lot of hands that helped me and uplift me and brought me forward with this book. So I just started and that's what it came down to. I remember on my 30th birthday, sitting by the pool in Las Vegas, because all I wanted to do was go swim and get tattoos and have good food. That is it. So we did that. And I remember just writing, just clicking it all out, putting everything I had, my heart and soul onto the paper. And I didn't care what people thought. You know, we all pretend that we don't care what people think, but deep down there's a, there's the inner child inside of us that is looking and seeking approval and awareness and people to say our name and know that who we are. That's just a human trait. Nobody wants to be the gray man forever. And nobody wants to not be acknowledged for the hard work they do. And anybody who says that that's, you know, well, that's not true. I never felt that way. You're lying and that's okay. But once you do enough self-work, you'll understand that you're lying to yourself. You want to be acknowledged for the hard work you do. And it's not for your ego, but it's because I've worked really, really hard and it deserves acknowledgement. Just like anybody else that does anything deserves acknowledgement and praise for it. So that's how we, I did it. And I, I started writing by writing out the chapters I wanted to write about, picking a, a, a timeline in my life, point A to point Z. And then I went, okay, what stories do I want to tell in this? And then I wrote a, a title and then I would put bullet points and I would expand on those bullet points. And that's how I started writing because it's daunting. And it, like 70,000 words is overwhelming. But if you break it down into bite-sized chunks, just like you do anything else, fitness, hydration, nutrition, whatever it may be, you can do it. The problem is most people quit halfway, quarter way, just like podcasts. How many podcasts in the world exist that only have no more than six episodes? Bro, you and I are in the top 2.5 for a reason. It's because we're consistent. We work hard. We show the fuck up. And we do this because we love it. And when you love something, that comes through, no matter what it is. Yeah, absolutely. What was the, um, how much were you referencing your, your journals? Like what was your writing process? Like, so titles, bullet points, or timeline titles, bullet points, kind of figuring out what you wanted to write. And then were you, at what point did you go back and kind of reference things that you had previously written? Like, what did that kind of granular process look like for you as you were unpacking some of those things that maybe you hadn't thought about since you had journaled? I actually went to my doctor. Um, I was fortunate enough that I've been seeing the same treatment doctor, uh, Dr. Greg Passy since 2011, when I moved out to British Columbia and I was medically released. Um, and this man is an old Bosnia, Rwanda, you know, I think Lieutenant Colonel medic was there during the genocides. Like this guy is a hardened individual. I think he's going into his seventies and he takes no shit. And so I said, listen, like, I know you've got notes. I know you've been writing about me. I know you've been, you know, and he's like, yeah, I got notes. And I was like, okay, well, here's the thing. This is what I'm trying to achieve. And what he would do is like, I would ask him, a, a, I would ask him questions like, Hey, this is what I know. I, I remember, is this what I said? And then he goes, yep, that lines up that tracks, you know, he wrote the forward to my book and it was the most beautiful thing because to come full circle in that way was such a healing point. So I would go back the if I was really uncertain, um, I would also reach out to a lot of the people. I know some people don't like to say I did, but I reached out to a lot of the British service members. They're actually quoted in the book. A lot of them reviewed the book for me. They have their photos in the book. Um, I went to as many people that knew me then as I could. And I did my best to reference what I was trying to convey onto paper. And when it came to the trauma stuff, Fortunately and unfortunately, one of the techniques we used was exposure therapy. So at that point, I had to write out all the really traumatic things and reread them. Now I know for me, that does not work and it doesn't work for everyone. But because of that, I had things written down when they were super fresh in my mind, when I was still able to recall timelines to a T. So I used those. Um, I also did my best to go back and look at photos and videos, you know, to really put me in that mindset, really put me in that place. And the other thing that I found, and, and some people don't want to hear this, and this may not be the best, but I'm going to say it anyway. I need cannabis when I write. The creative flow comes through me through medicine. And I don't mean medicine like 
Oxy or Adderall or anything like that. That's a hyper-focused drug. I'm talking about, I take a couple puffs on cannabis and the medicine is like, we got this girl. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And I'm able to be more vulnerable because I'm not questioning what I'm writing. Oh, what is someone going to think when I say this or when I word it this way? I'm just writing from within and knowing that I barely graduated high school. And the fact that this was going to be published at all, at all was going to be a win for me. So as long as I stayed true again to who I was and what I was trying to achieve, I knew in my heart that this would be fine. Yeah, I don't, I don't do it every time I write, but I take, I'll take gummies, um, certain kinds when I, when I, I'm writing through something like particularly, um, I don't know if difficult is the right word, but like, yeah, something I guess particularly difficult. It's just like, all right, let's, let's dance. Like, let's just put it all out there and kind of see what happens. And then it's like the old Hemingway, right? Like write drunk, edit sober. I know people probably don't want yeah. to hear that either because our community, we have a problem with alcohol, definitely. Yes. But the, 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 the principle kind of applies, right? Let, let go of yourself. And then let yourself look at it again later when you need maybe need to refine. Um, I want to ask about this ghostwriter. What did what did he what did he look at that he said wasn't good enough? They knew it. This ghostwriter that I had spoken to, she is an amazing she, human sorry. being. It's no, why? It's it's cool, man. Um, she looked at it and she said, "This is fantastic." She just wanted to make it more literary. She had written New York Times bestsellers before. And the goal for this book was for it to be a New York Times bestseller. And, you know, I think there's, I, I've looked now, I believe there's one Iraq female veteran who's hit the New York Times bestseller. She's a, a senator. Um, and, but I don't know about Afghanistan. So I, my goal, like I set lofty goals for myself, but if you're not setting lofty goals and trying to achieve them, then what is the point? So for me, it was, I want to get on the New York Times bestseller list. Personally, you may say that's your ego speaking, whatever it is, again, I shoot for the moon and I very rarely do not not land on it. And it's because I just put everything I have into it. So it was about making it more literary, maybe changing the language a little so that it it seemed like I knew what I was doing. You know, I, this book is not a, you know, it's, it's not like sitting down and reading, you know, Jordan Peterson's 12 rules. You're not going to have to go look in a dictionary and go, well, what does that mean? I, I did my best to, to write how I speak and tell stories how I talk. I wanted people to feel me through this. I didn't want them to think someone else did this. I wanted them to feel my hurt and my pain. And now next week, I'm going to record the audiobook in LA. So it's gonna be my voice. You're gonna hear the hard parts for me. You're going to, you're gonna feel it with me. And that's always been my goal. And if people are able to barely graduate high school, do the hard things in life, and somehow still be able to spit out words on paper, I don't think we always need someone to come in and polish it up and change it. Sometimes the raw vulnerability of it is what makes it so unique and so special. Yeah, it's back to what you said initially, right? Which is be, be yourself, be you, maintain your values, tell the story you want to tell and do what you want to do instead of doing something that you're not, which is, you know, literary, like whatever that means. Like pl I mean, Plunkett Bigger and I were talking words. about that. Yeah, like what, what does that even mean? Like, you know, and, and it means I, we all know what it means and that's great for certain things, but it might not be great for a, for a true memoir, for a true personal, you know, long form essay about your experiences and, and, what, and what you went through. So you, you kind of went there a little bit and I wanted I want to ask about your goal to be mm -hmm. on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, number one. Um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of us come out of the military and, and you know, it's the team before the individual it's, you know, one team, one fight. It's kind of all of these things that, that are, that are, are certainly true in, in certain instances, but not, but, and it instills in us this, this uh, anti-desire for accolades, this anti-desire for success, this anti-desire for, um, for the things that quite frankly, just are always at the end of a successful process. Can you talk about why you have the goal that you have and, and why it benefits you to operate towards it? I think everybody has to have a goal. Otherwise, where are you running? What's the point? You need to have a direction, uh, an objective, if you will. Let's speak military terms. You need an objective and you need to know how to go and get to that objective without anyone getting killed and without anyone getting hurt. And if you do the work, often you'll come out of it in a successful operation. It's the same with any other project I, 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 you know, I go for in my life. When, when my brand got put up for a CAFA, which is Canadian Art and Fashion Awards, we got put up because we were philanthropic work. It's called Fashion with Impact. So for me, it's like just to be nominated was a goal. 
So I got that. We didn't win, but that's okay. I was nominated. I hit my goal. I was acknowledged on a national stage in a way that I wanted to be. When it came to the book, I want to be a New York Times bestseller. I don't care if it hits number one or it's the last one on the list. I want to be a New York Times bestseller. And it's not about ego. And some people are like, well, that, you know, that does sound like the ego speaking. And it's like, well, okay, but in anything you do in life, there has to be an end goal. So why wouldn't you want it to be the highest achieving goal you can try and get to? I'm not going to ever say to you, hey, I'm going to go do, I'm going to go create a book. And you know what? If it sells one copy, that's fine with me. The reality is the, my blood, my sweat, my tears, my hurt, my everything went into this book. My time away from my family, my time away from my business, my time away from, you know, even just myself and putting myself through this process of reliving a lot of things. That has to mean something. It has to go somewhere. You have to want it to be seen. For me, it's not about the name. It's about what the name sets you up for. It's about being smart enough to understand that when you hit the list once, you are seen on a global, global stage. Why wouldn't you be aiming to be big? What is holding you back from wanting to be one of the great ones in this world? Because when I leave this earth, and depending on where the Canadian government goes, this will either be burned or it will thrive. And I will be known as one of the Canadian veterans who fought in a war that none of us needed to fight it. It'll be a part of history. My son will grow up and be able to say, this was my mom. His kids will say, that's my grandmother. And his kids' kids will say, that's my great-grandmother who used to do X, Y, and Z. And that might not resonate then, but it is something that I believe is so important. When you're a veteran and you've been a part of a war, any war, it does not matter. You are doing the world a disservice by not telling your story. That's what happened in Vietnam. That's what happened in World War II. And we lost so much history because of this. The idea of hitting the list is about growing what I am doing. And when you grow what I do, I'm able to help more people, period, end of story. We are the vehicle that puts the money in the hands of the organizations. And if it's not money, depending on where we're at financially, we give you product. We do partnerships. So when you sell a product, you benefit from the product. It's about looking at the objective and going, how can I help on a global scale? This is what I'm good at. How can I then donate from X, Y, and Z? Well, we're donating from the book. We're going to donate from the series. We're going to bring veterans, women's veterans issues and men's veteran issues to a global stage. And yes, other people have done it. I talked to Marcus Luttrell about it. I said, did you regret that process? And he goes, no, because if you do not pull things out of the dark and put them into the light, a lot of people will still feel alone. And I'm not saying I'm the savior and I'm gonna make everyone feel better, but I'm saying, take it for whatever you want. I am a female. I did a cool job. I'm proud of what I was able to achieve. Post-military, I've done a ton of things. And I think at the bare minimum, I would like others to learn from my mistakes because you don't have to go through it the way that I did. We're just not taught that you can achieve doing it differently. So I'm trying to be that example and show what it's like from a female veteran perspective that did combat as a mother, as a wife, as another human being. You hear all these stories of guys coming home and you know having alcohol issues and losing their wives and not seeing their kids, but you don't hear stories about the mother that was suicidal, that lost the child, that couldn't cope and the whole family couldn't be around her because she was fucking nuts to them. Like the reactiveness, the suicidal tendencies, the inability to be in public places. Like we don't see that from a female perspective very often. And you can say, well, women, man, I'm a woman. I have a different viewpoint. Just like Tim Kennedy's book has a different viewpoint. Like Matt Best has a different viewpoint. Like Stuart Scheller has a different viewpoint. How many female veterans do you see doing what I am doing? Because they don't think that they can achieve it. And they can. There is no glass ceiling. Somebody else has already hit the list. She's a bad bitch. She's amazing. But there is no glass ceiling. But we need to show up and start doing things. Because we can. And we deserve a place in this spot. All the cliques, all the veteran groups, all of the community. We don't, people don't like to admit it. But there are, it's just the way it works, man. There's an inner circle and an outer circle. If you're not in it, trust me, you'll know it. And you'll feel it. And that's okay to acknowledge. So when you walk in that room, you damn well better be an asset and not a liability if you want to stay in it. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, 
I, uh, I think the answer to that question you're asking will be, uh, there'll be a lot more after this book is published and it's the New York times bestseller, uh, you know, because of, because of, of, of your example, which is great. And, and it's, and it's something that I think, um, uh, you know, your, your passion is, um, your passion and the work behind your passion and, and what drives it, I think is, is, is what's shining through, which is incredible. Um, uh, so kind of wrapping things up here, I've got an open-ended question I've been asking on the podcast, but before we get to that, where, where can people find you? Where can people find the book? Uh, where do you want to drive, drive traffic to here for the sales for the book? Yeah, absolutely. So everything you, if you Google us, will pop up. Don't use Google, use something else. But, uh, you know, you can buy the book at Amazon. You can buy it at Simon and Schuster. You can buy it at Barnes Noble, anywhere books are sold. Uh, I'm not sure when this episode is coming out, but the, the release date of the book is July 11th. So that is ultimately the day that you can go and click Amazon. It'll be at your door the next day. Right now, everything is pre-sales. And then we've got that, that hard week we have to hit. And you're going to see me kind of all over the place, talking to a million people, just trying to get them to see what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, this will go live uh, at the end of June, at the end of this month. So in three weeks, um, right before. So people's uh, minds pre-ordered and uh, people will be able to, uh, we'll link that out. People can go pre-order from wherever they want to pre-order from. And uh, and we, we can all, all read it together on the 11th. Um, so the qu- question is, you know, what's on your heart and what's on your mind for, for our community? Obviously, we've talked quite a bit about that uh, already today, but um, kind of one last opportunity to, whether it's a piece of advice, whether it's just something you want to get off your chest, What's on your heart and what's on your mind for our community right now? The same thing that has always been since the day I picked up a pair of pliers and a casing in my hand. Buddy check, buddy check, buddy check, motherfucking buddy check. Check on your people. Enough excuses. Stop telling people you don't have time. Make the time. You made the time when they were beside you in the foxhole. You made the time when they were on the line with you. You made the time when you were on deployment. Make the time. These people need us. We need each other. And we need to stop acting as if it's feast or famine. Rising tides, team. You all know this. We need to start acting. Yes, we're civilians now. That's gross to say. Yes, we are. We are. We are. Get over it. We're here. We're a part of a global society. But here's where the ball is dropped. When we got out, we stopped caring about the guy and the woman to the left and right of us. We stopped putting the ownership and responsibility on us and we left it in the government's hand. And we've seen what happens when we do that. We turn into pill popping machines, alcoholics and suicide. It's between 22 and 44 a day and it is climbing. The way you stop that is you call your people, pick five, pick five, that's it. And make it your responsibility to call those people once a month. I do not care if you have to set aside one hour a month, make the calls, show up for your people, because I promise you, you will be so much happier when they say, man, I really needed that phone call than getting the phone call that they're no longer with us. And you're the one who has to sit with the widow and do the eulogy show up. We are better than this and we can heal, but we have to start acting as if we can. Well said. We're not just we're not just individuals out here floating around. We're we're part of a community, and uh, we need to act like it. Exactly, hundred percent. Well, listen, I appreciate the time. I'm stoked to read the book. Uh, I'm sure this will not be the last time that we do this, uh, and I'll be excited to do it again. And best of luck on the on the press tour, and uh, best of luck on sales. And super excited to follow along. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for having me. And also thank you for doing what you're doing. Shows like this need to exist. We need different perspectives. We need people to be willing and vulnerable and you're holding a space for that. I know it is not easy. I know sitting on the other side of some of these conversations is really painful and I know it takes a toll. So please just look after yourself, but thank you for doing what you're doing. I appreciate that. I really do. All right, Kelsey. We'll see you. See ya.